electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is a CNBC special, The Fed Factor. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell keeps hiking interest rates aggressively, and he says he can't stop until he breaks the back of inflation. We have got to get inflation behind us. I wish there were a painless way to do that. There isn't. The Fed's action, rippling pain across the markets, corporate America, and small businesses coast to coast. I think this is a two-part policy mistake of historic proportion. I think the odds of a recession in 2023 are very high. I think you'd offer the American people an apology. Will the Fed push the U.S. economy into recession? Will stocks keep dropping? And how hard will all this hit Main Street and small business? This CNBC special, The Fed Factor, starts right now. And welcome to this CNBC special, The Fed Factor. I am Brian Sullivan. Well, the Federal Reserve seems to be at the center of just about every part of our economic lives right now. They flooded the economy with cash during COVID, by cutting rates and jacking up the money supply. But now all that cheap money, along with trillions in government stimulus, may be a big part of the back-breaking inflation that many of you are facing. So tonight, we are going to look at what the Fed can do now to try to beat inflation without beating down the American economy. We're also going to ask what is next for markets with the S&P 500 on pace for its fourth worst year ever. And it's not just about the big money. We're going to head to Main Street and how one small Massachusetts bakery is dealing with inflation and crushing energy costs. That is all ahead. And also with you for the hour tonight, two CNBC friends and contributors, Steve Grasso and Tim Seymour. Gentlemen, thanks for sticking around late. It's an important topic, an important show. Um, Tim, if you had to quantify it, how much... Is the Federal Reserve a part of this market, a part of inflation, a part of the dollar? Oh, boy. Uh, Brian, the Fed is the market. It is certainly set the table on the inflation that we're working through now. And and I think if you put it in the market context, it's really about to what extent are we looking at policy error? And to the extent that the Fed is exporting Fed policy around the world, remember, our Fed, your problem, uh, that's a lot of what's going on. It's been quite a week and certainly been quite a few days when you look over in Europe and obviously what's been going on in the U.K. So um, no question 
mentioned that the markets are responding. We've been talking about the Fed on the show for the last 15 years or if we were doing the Fed factor, but certainly on this network. Um, it, it has been always fighting the Fed. Uh, where's the Fed put? Where's the Fed's, uh, you know, easy money p- policy? Where is bad news, good news? Because the Fed will get involved. Well, we've got more Fed than we wanted. So start off this way. Historically, the Fed is late to act and usually acts too long. So that's that's been the historic process with the Fed. So to touch on what Tim said, it's it's our Fed, your problem, our currency, your problem. How long will they overstay the welcome? And is this now a third mandate? So will they get a little uh, tight in their longevity because they're worried about hurting the other economies? That, well, to, that to me doesn't doesn't really play into it just now. But I think the overall market takes the lead from the dollar. So the longer the Fed overstays, the long, the higher the dollar goes, higher rates go, and the lower the equity market goes. That's that that's just how late. Okay, hold just, on. We're gonna get move on in just a second. How sure. late was this Fed? Oh. I mean, that's that's the point, guys, is that it's not that the Federal Reserve is not doing the job what they needed to do during COVID. It was that the Federal Reserve, to your point, hung out too long, kept rates too low for too long, kept the money supply 40 percent higher than it was pre-COVID for way too long and is now suddenly trying to stop the entire car right. in a very short period of time. I, I, I know you want to jump in, but really, really quick, I think they had to stay that long. I think they had to. I'm, I'm going to give a little bit, little bit of a, a, you know, a tailwind to the Fed here. I think they had to stay that long, quite frankly, because they were battling a, an unprecedented 100-year pandemic. They were forced to stay that long, and there were many things that were out of their control. So the inflation, to a certain, to a certain degree, is transitory, but the problem is, what is transitory? Is it on a relative basis? Is it going to, is it the zero uh, COVID policy? Well, is it energy? How, how do you define transitory? Well, transitory is going to go down in the book of infamy in terms of words that I, I, I think really we're, we're misrepresented. And again, you have a Fed who's got a dual mandate. Yep. The only mandate we're hearing about right now is price stability. Uh, Jerome Powell has evoked, I, I would argue, a mentor and a dyed-in-the-wool hawk, but Paul Volcker. And, and Paul Volcker has made it very clear or made it very clear in his tenure that you need to move faster and more extraordinarily because you have to get the concept of, of inflation out of the consumer. And again, the difference between this time and Volcker's time is that interest rates here started at zero. So the move uh, 300 and something basis points very quickly is massive. In Volcker's time, it was 12% when we started relative, very different. Yeah, similar time, but a very different time as well. Well, there's a lot of criticism being thrown at the Fed. In fact, this morning on CNBC, Wharton Business School professor Jeremy Siegel really pulled no punches. The interesting thing is I look back a year ago, September, it was exactly as tight as it is today, and he never said anything. Honestly, Chairman Powell, I think should offer the American people an apology for such poor monetary policy that he's pursued and the Fed has pursued over the last two years. So is that criticism fair? Didn't Congress and trillions of new spending there also play a big role in how we got here? Let's bring in now former Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Roger Ferguson and KPMG Chief Economist Diane Swank. Roger, I'm going I'm to start with you. You're a former member of the Fed. I'm sure you're friends with Jay Powell. I know you know these people. But do they deserve the criticism that they are now beginning to face? I don't think they deserve uh, the criticism as uh, vociferously as it has been addressed. 
Um, and so certainly there was a mistake made in the discussion around transitory that proved to be wrong. Having said that, this inflation has a number of underlying causes. Some are domestic, monetary and fiscal stimulus that may be uh, overshot. But we also have an unusual set of circumstances, including a shooting war in Europe for the first time in two generations that had a huge impact on oil prices and also uh, food prices. And we had a very uneven opening from a once-in-a-hundred-year event, a pandemic. So, uh, yes, some criticism for falling into the transitory uh, camp, but also let's recognize this inflation has had numerous causes, some of which are outside of their control. It's fair. It certainly is fair, Diane. But I would point to the fact that inflation in October of last year, well before the invasion, was also running at nearly 40-year highs. In fact, we did an inflation wall back in, I think, May of 2021 on my show on CNBC to talk about how things were starting to run hot. I don't think anybody doubts the initial reaction to the supply chain, to the pandemic, to COVID. I think it was the length of time that money was kept so easy. Well, there's no question about that. And I do, and I agree with Roger. I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, there were a lot of factors that contributed to this inflation and the war in Ukraine certainly was one that just added fuel to an already well-kindled fire. Getting to your point that there was inflation out there, I was one of those people arguing, I think this has got more legs to it. It's not just transitory. They did sort of do a mea culpa on that. Remember, it was a year ago in September, they were starting to talk about tapering asset purchases and thinking about tapering asset purchases. So we're a year into that and it took a long time and we still are, you know, got to see by the end of this month that the Fed can meet the mandate on getting to that $95 billion a month in reduction in assets by allowing their asset purchases to mature off their balance sheet. So that's one issue. But I think from the Fed's perspective, they're now in the position where they feel they're choosing the lesser of two evils. Hopefully, what they're attempting to do is to slow down the economy, raise unemployment. Yes, I do think there's going to be a recession. I think they're a little fanciful in their own estimates, but do it over a long period of time and hopefully Mm. grind inflation out of the economy and not repeat the mistakes of the 1970s and 1960s, the stop-and-go policies of then, when we had a much more corrosive inflation and stagflation take root. That said, it's easier said than done. And I think the focus on sort of grinding inflation out with a slow slowdown and a mild recession is what all central banks are doing. And I worry that this is happening synchronously Mm -hmm. around the world. And it is true that we're exporting some of those rate hikes abroad every time we have a rate hike here and the dollar strengthens. But I think that there is a synchronicity to what's happening that could amplify rate hikes and make it a much deeper global recession at the same time that it's not synchronized. These are not coordinated moves by central banks. Well, Roger, we we call Jay Powell and the Fed now hawks, right, because they're aggressive about inflation. I worry more that Chairman Powell may become a sacrificial lamb because there is already the political attacks that are beginning. We saw Elizabeth Warren this morning come out and effectively look for blame on the Fed as we head toward midterms. And I don't want to over politicize it, but how insulated do you think Powell and company can be for what are probably going to be more vocal attacks by members of Congress who want to say to the American people, it's not our fault, it's their fault. 
Well, I certainly hope that they're insulated. Uh, there's a reason why we have independent central banks and why that has become the norm around the world. And the reason is that fighting inflation, when it occurs, is unpopular. Raising interest rates is an unpopular act. Paul Volcker saw it. He is now today revered for having uh, saved us from inflation that <clears throat> was out of control. And so I think it's really important for the public to recognize, as Jay Powell has said, that inflation is very corrosive. It affects the lower middle income and lower class people more than anybody else. Uh, and so it is really important to get it out of the system. And that's why we have independent central banks. Not surprising to hear politicians and others criticize them because it's pretty clear that politicians, if left to their own devices, are unlikely to ever raise interest rates and, you know, deal with the questions of inflation, which is why the Fed was created as a congressional mandate to be independent. So, you know, I'm sure there will be criticism. There's been criticism in the past. I think at the end of the day, uh, society, America, is made better off by getting inflation under control. And unfortunately, there will be some pain. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but as I think Jay Powell has said, Chairman Powell said correctly, pain later uh, is much worse than taking some pain now. And, and it is clear that there will be some pain now. Hey, Roger, it's Tim Seymour. Totally agree that one of the great things of our country is the independence of the central bank. And one of the things that we've seen is if you look around the world, especially to the U.K., people are looking at the, uh, the great, you know, the Britain pound as, as an emerging market currency over the last couple of days. Monetary fighting fiscal policy. How much harder is this making the global inflation front? And obviously, we just talked about the politics in the U.S. I think it's making it, you know, substantially harder. Uh, we're going to find the U.K. having to raise rates, you know, much higher than they otherwise intended to deal with the pound that is, is weakening because of dramatic shifts in fiscal policy. We also have on continental Europe a high probability of uh, recession because of the geopolitical turmoil. Uh, and so I think things have become much more challenging. Uh, and it's really important for everyone to understand that having responsible fiscal policies everywhere is an important part of the story. Uh, and also, frankly, recognizing very honestly and transparently that it's going to be very difficult to drive this inflation out without some pain in almost every economy. So we should buckle up for what's going to be probably a pretty rough ride, not just in the U.S., but in other places as well. So, so Diane, piggybacking, it's Steve Grasso. Pleasure to be on with you. I've been watching you and listening to you for years. Always love the way that you narrate the Fed in a clear, calm, coherent way. How dedicated to crushing demand do you think the Fed will be, given what Roger just said? The medicine is actually going to hurt the lower income levels as much as the ailment. Well, the issue is, Inflation is like a cancer or something I'm very familiar with, unfortunately. And cancers, if you don't deal with them early, the consequences is they metastasize and they're much worse and you have a much more chronic condition. And that's what Roger is pointing to is that this is where the Fed is at now. This is the choice, the lesser of two evils. And I think we've seen Jay Powell really understand and very plain spoken way say, listen, all we have are crude tools. All we can do is hammer demand to bring it in line with a chronically undersupplied world. And I think that is where we've gotten to. It's not great, but if we don't do it now, the consequences will be much greater later on. And yes, it is painful. And it's really a hard counterfactual to argue out there and say it would be worse if we didn't do this when it hurts you now. But I think that, you know, sort of thinking of it in terms of an ailment that 
could get chronic and become a chronic condition that you could treat today, that for me, mainly because I have a real personal experience with it, but that for me is the way that we have to sell this. Now, the other point I think Roger made about the independence of the Fed and how important that is, you know, part of the reason that the UK is being seen like a banana republic of sorts at the moment is not only their irresponsible fiscal policy and making the job much harder for the central bank, but also their threats on the independence of the central bank in the UK. And this is why we have an independent central bank. And, you know, Roger has seen it. I've seen it. This central bank has taken a lot of incoming over the last five to six years, regardless of who was in the White House, some of it directly. And they've handled it with extraordinary grace. Yeah, and maybe some of the worst energy policies in the developed world in the UK. Roger, very, very quickly, is a recession guaranteed? I think recession is highly likely. Uh, you know, nothing's guaranteed in this world, but I would put the odds of recession very, very high. Roger Ferguson and Diane Swong, thank you both very much. All right, we are just getting started tonight. And coming up, we're going to hit more on stocks and what other factors may be at work for this tough year. Plus, Would you pay 10% or more in interest to buy a car? You may have to. I'll show you why. Next. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, welcome back to our CNBC special. We are live tonight with The Fed Factor. It has been a September to forget for most stock owners. Markets lower now for five days in a row. The S&B and NASDAQ on pace to have their worst month since June, while the Dow could have its worst month since March of 2020. 
all the way back at the start of the pandemic and the panic in the markets. Now, people are looking for something or someone to blame. So how much of a factor is the Fed in that conversation? Bob Pisani with us live tonight from the NYSE, where no doubt it's got to be a hot topic on the floor, Bob. It is. And uh, so how much of a factor is the Fed itself? Because that's what we're talking about. How much of they playing in this slump. So look at it this way. This is the way I look at it. The S&P 500 went up an average of 15% a year from 2010 through 2021. Brian, that is extraordinary. That is five percentage points higher than the historic average of a 10% gain per year. Now, why did the S&P 500, and particularly growth stocks, outperformed so much during this period. Most observers believe that a good part of this outperformance was because the Fed was very actively pumping money into the system and, of course, keeping interest rates low at the same time. That liquidity drove money into stocks and was likely a factor in driving stock valuations to their highest levels since the dot-com era of the early and late 1990s, as represented by the P.E. ratios. Now, if the Fed Adding liquidity and keeping rates low was a factor in the market's outsized performance during this time. It's reasonable to assume that the Fed withdrawing liquidity and raising rates might account for a period of underperformance for the markets, which, of course, is exactly what we are seeing this year. Indeed, you know, Vanguard told investors earlier this year that because of the high fiscal and monetary support over the last few years and the corresponding really high valuations, then investors should expect subpar returns. And they were talking about two to four percent per year in the next few years as that support that the Fed has provided is reduced. Brian. Yeah, Bob, I mean, you've been doing this for a while. We've seen interest rates, for the most part, be pretty low for the last 15 years. And one of the things that we've talked about, you and I, and I've talked about at conferences and whatever, is the lack of experience that many, if you're under the age of 45 years old in the market, you've never been in a rising rate or inflationary environment, and it changes the game. Historical models for the last 25 years, you could throw them right out this NASDAQ window. Yeah, and young people have never had any reason to really even own bonds, if you think about it. Remember, uh, bonds used to compete against stocks. Uh, when the valuations of or when rates were high, they very much competed against stocks and people started buying bonds. People haven't seen that in decades. And recently, Brian, I did stories last week, Sharon Epperson did it this week, about young people who are suddenly going out and starting to buy bonds for the first time, two-year yields at over 4%, even if, it, if, uh, if uh, inflation is still high, that's starting to be very compelling. And remember, that competes against the stock market. It's very simple. You got more people interested in that than the stock market. That means less people buying stocks. Brian? Amazing that we're talking about younger investors buying bonds. Bob Pisani, thank you very much. Okay. All right, well, next week, hard to believe, time is flying, right? We start the fourth quarter, but the Federal Reserve still has two big moves to make. There are meetings in both November and December. So can we expect even more rate hikes? Let's dig a little bit deeper into that and the markets with Mona Mahajan of Edward Jones and Julie Beal of Kane Anderson Rudnick. Mona, I'll start with you. But a bad year. I think we're down 28% or something like that in the S&P 500, the fourth worst start to a year, according to Compound Capital. But... I guess here's the bad news. A traditional recession, assuming we get one, the average is a 32% drawdown for equities. So it sounds like you think we could have more downside to come in markets. Yeah, you know, look, I think you could 
use that as a downside or, or maybe even a upside scenario. Think about it this way. Uh, a lot of the work to the downside in markets has already been put in through this first nine months of the year. And yes, it's been painful. And yes, it's been very difficult to fight the Fed this year, uh, both in equities and bonds, actually. Um, but, you know, if we're heading towards a scenario and we do think a recessionary environment becomes more and more likely given the size and the length of the rate hikes we're seeing, but the good news, again, is that we don't yet see the scope for a deep or prolonged recession. So in that backdrop, as you noted, average recessions, uh, in our analysis, down on average 34 percent in the S&P 500. We're down about 23 to 24 percent. Shallow recessions are down about 28 percent on average. So what we're looking at here is 5 to 10 percent downside. But the way you might want to think about it is, you know, if we do enter that period of volatility, that really could be your opportunity to position yourself for perhaps a more sustainable rebound in the 12 months ahead. Yeah, I mean, Julie, isn't that kind of the idea that that we want to buy low? I mean, if our timeline is next month or maybe even middle of next year, I get it. Think about it. We could be lower in six months than we are now. But if your timeline is 10 years from now, maybe even five years from now, history says that 80 percent or whatever the time, the S&P 500 is likely to be a lot higher in five and 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, for us, our point of view is you should always be fully invested because trying to pick the bottom and trying to hit it with timing is next to impossible on a consistent basis. The real gains that you make in the stock market are from time, just the amount of time you have them in the market. What I think is right now happening is you have an opportunity to find good quality companies that should be able to weather a recession um, at better valuations than before. What's tricky about knowing if we've hit the bottom or not is we've never really hit the highs that we have. You know, before you would talk about software names trading at 10 times revenue and they got to 100 times revenue. So unwinding that means we could have more to go. It's really hard to say. I just don't think it's useful to try to say this is the bottom. I think it's a fool's errand. So, Mona, I, I actually agree with what Julie had just stated. But when you look at the calendar. I'm a big seasonality person when it comes to trading. When you look at the midterms, you, you've, we've all seen the, the data on this, on this desk. 12 months out after a midterm election, the market is always higher. How much credence do you put to things like that? Or is this time different? And I hate when people say that because it's usually you just never did, different. But you just said <laughs> that. I know. So I hate myself. Yeah. No, you don't. Look, you make a good point. Um, the, yeah. Hold the me. Data, it's okay. we've, we've all done it. Uh, no, I think the data around midterms is actually surprisingly pretty consistent. And you highlighted it well. The 12 months after midterm elections tend to be positive by a good 15% on average. <clears throat> so um, while history may not repeat itself exactly, we could certainly see it rhyme. And keep in mind, this time we could be getting this period after midterms that coincides with a potential Fed pause, which coincides with perhaps a period of stability in bond yields, which I think the markets are really seeking out as part of this bottoming process, and of course could coincide with a period of inflation rolling over more meaningfully. So if we get all those factors in play, uh, and we're in this post-midterm election period, some of the uncertainty is behind us, uh, that's not a bad backdrop for investors to be in, and certainly one that we're considering in the months ahead. 
Hey, Julie, it's Tim. How do you think about the traditional leaders and what have been the mega cap tech stocks in an environment where uh, if you're talking about longer duration tech companies, they don't totally fit that bill. And in many cases, they've been very defensive. Apple's been very defensive, uh, still trades at a big premium to the market. So uh, looking longer term, but also understanding the current market dynamic, what are you doing with some of the biggest companies in the market here? I think what's critical is to be looking at both valuation and the fundamental drivers of those businesses, right? So again, I don't view Apple and Google to be the same kind of business. Apple is selling $1,000 phones, a consumer discretionary item, and Google has 98% of search. It's just not the same. So I, I think you can't lump them all together. And I think you have to look at the, each of them on a case-by-case -case basis and say, if demand really dries up, what happens in this business and how stable is it? Is it? Does it have debt? Does it have lots of variable costs? It's. I really think this becomes more and more of a stock picker's market. Mona and Julie, thank you very much. Mona, we'll let you go. Julie, you are going to stick around a bit yeah. longer with our thanks. Thanks to you both. Julie, we'll see you in a few minutes. All right, up next, we're going to talk about the state of the retail investor, how some are now doubling down in some rather surprising ways. Later on, a family-owned bakery facing a rough road as inflation energy prices surge. We'll go to the heart of American business. That's small business. Next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. All right, welcome back. Well, as stocks sink, it's easy to think that the smaller retail investor is running for the hills. But maybe think again, because one research firm shows some traders getting in, even as others are looking to get out. Kate Rooney joining us with the details on this. Hi, Kate. Hey, Brian. That's right. Retail investors aren't going anywhere, but they are changing up their strategies. Those individual traders have been cutting risks throughout the year, pretty similar to what we've seen from institutional investors. And a few signs of that lately, a big one is margin balances. Those riskier positions where you borrow money to make a trade are down 35% at Robinhood and nearly 20% over at Schwab. That's according to JMP Securities. It also correlates with lo uh, lower overall trading activity. As JMP's Devin Ryan told me, retail investors are being, quote, more tactical and defensive rather than exiting the market altogether. And then Vanda Research noting some pretty similar trends. Retail investors have maintained the pace of uh, daily purchases on U.S. exchanges during the market slide. Data from Vanda shows a surge of inflows last week. That was when the S&P slid back to those June lows. Daily net inflows have been pretty stable around 
this year's average of $1.2 billion per day. And they're not rushing to sell. Overall, retail has an average to low allocation to cash. The levels are still significantly below that recent COVID sell-off peak. And Vanna says retail sentiment is also not flashing panic just yet. One group that is pulling back, though, Brian, the more speculative end of retail, that, of course, is the meme stock traders. As Vanda puts it, that group has gone back into hibernation and are unlikely to make a hasty comeback anytime soon. They measure this through options data and then social media mentions. To put it in context and just how many people we're talking about here, Brian, according to JMP, in just two years of the pandemic, 25 million new brokerage accounts were open. So there's a lot of first-time investors adjusting to this New market normal, or the Fed factor, as you might call it. Back to you. As we might call it, indeed. Kate Rooney, <laughs> Tonight, the Fed factor. Exactly. Thank you very much. It's amazing how you just wove that in there. It's like you've done TV before. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, let's go back now to our panel. Julie Beal is still with us. And, Julie, you know, listen, I've got my cell phone in my hand, and I can go on this phone, and I can bet on FanDuel, and I can bet on the, the Giants to lose tonight, but I can also buy stocks. Right. It make it very, very easy to buy stocks. And you do wonder if the environment we've been in for a couple of years, ultra low rates, ultra cheap money, if not free money, markets going up, up, up until this year have just kind of played into almost an addictive behavior by some people. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at some of these apps, they're geared towards driving excitement towards investing. Right. There was the confetti at Robin Hood. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to me, right, because every time I place a trade, I'm like sick to my stomach a little bit, right, because I'm aware of the level of risk. And the problem with a lot of these apps is they're not really able to ascertain a person's appetite for risk because most of us don't even know it until we actually lose a bunch of money and get that feeling and that sensation and that psychology. What I think is kind of interesting is how are investors going to respond on the retail side to seeing better opportunities to just be in cash and earn a return on cash balances, which they haven't in a very long time. Some young people have never earned interest in their accounts. So I think that starts to compete. And they think to themselves, wait, if the market's going to continue to go down, maybe I can get things at a better deal and I can just wait. So I think it's important to think that the it's I think it's problematic to always assume that the retail investor is the dumb money. They can be, but they sure got it right in 2020. So I'm willing to give them a little more credit. Yeah, and I think we should, Tim. I mean, but I will say, and by the way, anybody's in the market, market participants, we appreciate. And I think you need to learn the good with the bad, right? I mean, you've done this a long time and things going up, up, up makes people feel a lot more confident maybe than they should. Well, what's what's great is that the retail investor has been kind of re-enfranchised over the last four or five years. If you think about where we were, Fed factor, after the last financial crisis and really the role that the Federal Reserve had to play, part of what they were doing was to kind of rebuild the wealth effect of, of, of Main Street. Um, where I think the Fed has been very involved is uh, they were very involved during COVID, and a lot of that Fed activity was also to stimulate the stock market and to stimulate liquidity. So um, the good news for the market is that if you think about the, the passive fund flows and the retail investor, through at least June, and this is where at least I have the most recent data, we were actually in line with where we, we were even the quarter before. And if you think about where we really started getting dodgy for these markets. So retail fund flows, um, if you want to take a glass half full, have not reversed. If you're a trader and you look at that the institutional community has cash levels above 6%, we have short interest uh, in the S&P and in some of the futures where we've seen at the worst of the global financial crisis. These are reasons to be a little concerned. Again, I, I agree with Julie. I agree with you. I think the retail investors never had 
have more information. They've been, never been more empowered. Um, but I do think that there's a mentality here that markets still go up. And I think that's something that, again, for, for, for professional players, it's something where people have been cautious. And, and I think people are waiting for a reversal of some of those flows. And we absolutely have not seen it. And good for them for staying in the pocket. And you don't know what money they're trading. You don't know if they're trading retirement money on the retail side. You don't know if they're trading disposable cash money, a regular equity account where stimulus, they're relying on that money, money, stimulus money. PPP I, money. I, I, used to, I used to know anecdotally I would hear stories that people would tell me that they would take out a home equity loan to put into the market because they could beat that rate that they were getting on the home equity loan. You're not going to see that amount of disposable cash coming into a market while interest rates are where they're at now. And it's the institutions, to Tim's point, that have the extra money to put in, but the retail investor has to struggle to find that extra disposable And and that's a wall of worry that actually could help the retail investor here. So so let's be totally clear. Uh, I would just say there's, you know, when I talk to my clients, a lot of people are actually fearful of missing out on the Fed pivot. So if anything, right now, I still think there's a concept of that the Fed is the one that you have to follow. Good for you, except for the fact that I think a lot of people still think the Fed's there for them. Julie, very quickly, when do we start talking about a Fed rate cut? I'm not kidding. Mid-23? You know, know, if we're lucky, right? It's, you know, I think they're committed to breaking the back of inflation. They've looked at what happened in the 1970s, and they know they have to take it seriously. So data dependent. But it's hard to know when because the data is just so mixed. Yeah. Well, historically, that move from 8 to 2% has taken years in industrial economies longer in emerging economies. Oh, and by the way, we have a couple major elections coming up. Julie Beal, thank you very much. All right, coming up, the Fed's impact on the auto business. Car makers now taking a hard turn away from leasing, and that could put many consumers on a collision course with some serious sticker shock. We're gonna find out why. This CNBC special, The Fed Factor, has much more in store. Next. All right, welcome back to the Fed Factor. Have you tried to buy a car lately? Well, if you have, you know that a good car is still hard, if not impossible, to find. And if you find it, the price is still much higher than it was a few years ago. And now auto loans are surging in costs as well. So maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to buy them on a lease. Well, Phil LeBeau is here to tell us why that could also be taking a big hit. Phil. Brian, I know someone, and I'm sure you know someone as well, who every three years, like clockwork, they're leasing a new vehicle. I hear from people and they're always like, yeah, I'm thinking about leasing this. What do you think? Well, leasing is a lot tougher nowadays because fewer people are leasing. The auto dealers have fewer vehicles to lease. According to Edmonds, last year, one out of every four vehicles that was bought, and that's what they say bought, was actually leased. And that's generally been the industry average, really, over the last 20 or 30 years. Well, this year, It's down to 17%. A couple of things are happening right now. First of all, more consumers are opting to buy instead of lease. And many automakers have cut their leasing by at least 30%, in large part because they just don't have the inventory of vehicles. They would rather sell than lease a vehicle, if possible, because the margins are a little bit better in the repeat business, etc. And as a result... There's just not as much leasing activity. What about the cost to lease right now compared to buying either a new or a used vehicle? The gap between used 
and leasing and new, it's all about the same, although it's all gone up about 12 to 13 percent, depending on what your option is there. Look at leasing. It's almost $600 a month for the average payment. And for the auto dealers, because there are fewer people who are leasing, there are also fewer people who are deciding to roll out of a lease and buy a vehicle. Many are went at the end of their lease are saying, you know what? I'm just going to buy out the lease here. That hurts the used vehicle supply. And ultimately, for the auto dealers, they love that used vehicle supply. That's where the leasing business has always been a steady pipeline. It's a little tighter now. Take a look at the automakers, Ford, GM, Stellantis. Remember, all of them are dealing with tight inventory right now, which is really what's forcing the tight leasing market. We'll get the September and the Q3 numbers this time next week. And by the way, Brian, the numbers are not going to be that great. They're still hurting because of the lack of chips, supply chain challenges. We're going to see a pretty lackluster number for September next week. Unbelievable. Another hit there in the auto stocks. have felt it as well. Phil Bow, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, still to come, one family story of how they're trying to keep their bakery going even as rates rise, energy costs soar, and suppliers shut down. That is next. All right, welcome back to our CNBC special, The Fed Factor. Well, so far tonight, we have talked mostly about how rising rates and inflation are impacting Wall Street and big business. Well, now I want to look at the impact on Main Street. Our next guests are a mother and son team who own a Peruvian pastry shop just outside of Boston. They say rising costs and uncertainty are threatening their ability to share their heritage and their pastries, their community. Let's bring in Doris Montoya and Marcos Flores of Doris's Peruvian Pastries. Welcome, Marco and Doris. Really great to have you on. Um, Doris, I'm going to start with you because rising rates are a problem, but, but I've talked a lot in the last year about rising electricity prices, energy costs, and labor issues. You're kind of, it feels like you're facing a squeeze between all of them. Yes, definitely. Um, that, is, that is hurting us because uh, the prices on most of the ingredients, they went up crazy. It's, it's, that's so much. Some ingredients, they went up uh, like 69%. Another one that is the cornstarch that we used a lot because it is the ingredient base in our alfajores. It went up 207%. Yeah. And even as you mentioned, the electricity went up by 60% in this upcoming year. So it's just been hitting us in, in all different ways, right? The, uh, the pandemic may not be here as, as, as much as it was before as far as, you know, where it was, but uh, it's still hitting us in a, in a very real way. And, and this, Marco, is, is something that we have talked a lot about, or at least I have, about these energy costs, because even though, it, you know, the price of oil and gas have come down a little lately, you guys feel the lagging effect, do you not? If it's gone up for the last 12 months, you're going to pay it out for the next 12 months. Do you have any options to, to get cheaper energy or is the bill you get the bill you're stuck with? Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's been sort of the way that it is. Uh, it's based on where we live. Um, and that's we, we sort of just have to, in a way, as they say, buy that bullet and, uh, and, and continue to pay the high prices. Unfortunately, we want to continue to run the business in, in the way that we are. Yeah, and yeah I I'm sorry. No, Doris, please, we want to hear from you and, and how you're managing through this because we want small business 
to succeed. And we know that some of your suppliers have shut down. My guess is employees are, are hard, if not impossible to find. What's, what's your plan? Yeah, uh, the electricity, talking about that, is going up 60%, as Marco said. And the oven that we use, that we use the most, is uh, with electricity. It's an electric oven. And it is really, I know that the gas is, um, the prices are coming down, but still, I don't know why other things are not coming down. They are, we are going to be in the winter shortly and that is going to kill us it's it's crazy about the prices and you, and you and you don't you don't have any options what do you uh, i i don't want to make this political in any way marco or maybe it's the weather whatever you want to call it what, what do you blame what do you blame this on do you, do you guys sit around the table and say well, well darn it if this wouldn't have happened then you know, it's 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 kind of hard to point fingers to something specifically. I just know that it was something that, uh, as a country as a whole, we were not prepared for uh, very clearly, and as a result, we we see the impact of that, um, and we continue to see the ripple effects of it years later. Um, so our hope was to be in a different place today, um, and although farmers markets and stores have opened up and we've seen some growth there, we are getting hit now from angles like real estate even trying to move into a commercial kitchen. Um, you know, like you mentioned, people not wanting to, to, to work, really not looking for work. And, and uh, or, or there's there's jobs out there. And we're trying to look for people to help out. But it's, it's where, been very Marco, difficult. where where this is a story that we have talked about. We got to do more on CNBC. I'm just going to say this right now. We have to do more on CNBC on this. Where are the workers? I've traveled all over the country for the last two years. Talked to small business owners, big in rural areas, urban areas. Where are the workers? I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you because we are looking for them. Um, and, and, and I mean, we're offering, from our opinion, you know, and based on the market, uh, a, a fair and, and competitive uh, compensation uh, for helping out at farmers markets. And these are not necessarily difficult jobs either. And, and we think we're, we're paying well, but um, it's, it's just been difficult to find people to, to help out. Give us give us your web address or your real address so we can come up there and we can support small. How do we find you? I'm going to come up there and gorge on Peruvian pastries. Yeah, absolutely. Our website is uh, www.dorisperuvianpastries.com. Um, and we are based out of Marlboro, Massachusetts. Um, so you can find uh, it's, it's a home bakery right now. And like I said, we're hoping to find some commercial space where we can uh, shift our, our, our production into um, yeah. real estate prices right now. It just seems very difficult. Yeah, and, and they're not our friend Tillman Fertitta, who, by the way, is the, like the biggest restaurant owner in America. He was on the previous hour, and he said you, even for him, the real estate, they wouldn't come down. It's tough. Well, we're rooting for you. You're the heartbeat of American business. Dorsa Marco, we got to order some Peruvian pastries and support you. Thank you very much. Really best to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, a final check on the markets. We'll get final comments from, from these two guys who have no doubt gorged on some Peruvian pastries back in their I day. I wish. We're back wish. right up. You will. All right, welcome back. Let's wrap it up. Keep it a little loose here. Nothing structured, guys. Appreciate you staying late, by the way. Let's talk, Tim. Uh, we were sort of chatting in the break. If you had to point to a market, an asset class, a stock, whatever, that benefited the most 
from the Fed's easy money policies and maybe hurt the most? Who would it be? It, what was, would it, be? it was high multiple tech, unquestionably, and, and Tesla is at, at the top of that list. And, and Tesla, who's been executing over the last couple of years, for sure. Um, but again, when money was free and they had a chance to really rebuild uh, both that balance sheet. And, and I would just say that in this environment, the companies that are the consumer staples companies that are delivering both free cash flow, growing their dividend, are the ones that benefit. And higher inflation actually helps food companies. I know that's awful, uh, but if you look at some of the numbers over the last couple of weeks, whether it's General Mills or McKesson, they've been great. I think General Mills is at all-time highs. Yep. Stock is right there. And, and if you look at those companies that are environmentally friendly, at least with this administration, there's been a huge push for solar companies, for, as Tim said, a Tesla, an EV company. But those things usually extend themselves a little bit too far, and they overcorrect. So we saw energy, for various amount of reasons, was actually lifted up doing this whole during this whole last cycle when energy, as you know more than anybody else, did nothing for five well, we years. Showed, bring that up. We showed the TAN, which yeah. is a very popular ETF. And I wonder, you know, because we're throwing 300 and some 30 billion at tax credits at Correct. renewables and solar. But at the same time, solar panels are incredibly aluminum heavy. Aluminum costs are soaring because Absolutely. of energy. So how do we balance that out? Well, first of all, aluminum prices are coming down. Copper prices have been coming down. I think that's good. Ultimately, I, I, you know, Steve and I are at odds on this. I think the energy sector is very attractive here, especially when you consider uh, the structural headwinds from the dollar and demand, I think, is actually going to be kicking up here in the fourth if, quarter. If copper costs huge on EV chargers, aluminum costs huge on solar panel companies are coming down. Mm-hmm. $330 billion in tax credits are going in. Demand for renewables is going up. I don't understand the price action on the TAN being down. Shouldn't that thing be soaring more than it, it is? It should be, but to Tim's point, there's other things that are taking the eye off the ball here. So if you look at the environment that we're in, it's all based on the dollar. I'll, I'll leave it with that. So if the, if the dollar starts to yeah. ebb and starts to come in, other things will rally. Well, the dollar, and that's maybe another show. It's going to be a friend soon. Fred, Fed Factor, <laughs> the dollar, it'll be a sequel to this. Guys, really appreciate it. Tim and Steve, thank you very much. Thank you all for watching or listening to the CBC special, The Fed Factor. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.